Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 71. And this episode is with Peter Adamson, who is professor of late ancient and Arabic philosophy at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, and also professor of ancient and medieval philosophy at King's College London. Peter is also the host of the really terrific podcast, philosophy podcast, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, and he's also the author of the book series by the same name. But one other and most likely the most important of his qualifications is that Peter is also an alum of Robinson's podcast, a denizen of the podcast Multiverse. And he was on episode 39 in which we talked about philosophy in the Islamic world. This episode, however, we talk about Neoplatonism, which is a philosophical movement in late antiquity from the third, around, it was in its heyday from the third to the sixth century CE. And we also talk about some of its great thinkers, including Plotinus, uh, Porphyry, well, his student Porphyry, Porphyry's student Iamblichus, and Proclus, and some of the things that they were interested in and wrote about. So evil, uh, Plotinus wrote about evil, and Peter actually has a really great episode on the Philosophy Bites podcast about Plotinus on evil. And we talk about Porphyry's logic, his arguments for vegetarianism, of which there were many, and then also the way that religion interacted with Neoplatonism, which is quite interesting and involves paganism. Or, well, I guess that's what you would call the ancient Greek religion. But I won't say much more about Neoplatonism because right off the bat, Peter explains what it is, where it comes from, where the word comes from, and why it's so important. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed talking with Peter. In our last episode, we talked about uh, philosophy in the Islamic world, which you prefer I recall now to Islamic philosophy. And mm -hmm. if I recall correctly, though, one of the main factors that drove you to specialize there was the fact that there was so much original work left to be done. Yeah. Because it was like a relatively underexplored topic. What then brought you to Neoplatonism? Was it a different set of concerns? It was partially that, actually. So certainly if you compare Neoplatonism to say, Plato and Aristotle, who are the two main sources of Neoplatonism, then there's a lot more text total by Neoplatonists than Plato and Aristotle. But obviously the literature, the secondary literature on Neoplatonism dwar is dwarfed by the secondary literature on Plato and Aristotle. That So that was certainly an issue. Uh, another issue is that I kind of gravitate towards philosophy that I find surprising or even strange. So when I see philosophers, especially a lot of philosophers, and especially very influential philosophers, saying things that seem kind of weird, I, w I just want to know why. And I've, I think one of the, not certainly not the only reason to do a history of philosophy, or the only way of doing history of philosophy, but one thing that is interesting about the history of philosophy is that you can kind of delve into these, what, what may seem kind of exotic or very foreign counterintuitive worldviews, and start to in, sort of understand them from the inside. And Neoplatonism offers a great opportunity to do that because it is very systematic and it's very much a worldview that kind of hangs together. Everything 
connects to everything else in Neoplatonism. And so wrapping my mind around that just seemed like an interesting challenge. Um, and then I guess maybe one other issue is that Neoplatonism is just incredibly historically influential. And since I was interested and in getting interested back then in uh, philosophy in the Islamic world, and I was already interested in Latin medieval philosophy, um, I could see that there was a lot of Neoplatonism behind all of that. So something I, I sometimes say is that if you follow the kind of traditional way of periodizing the history of Western philosophy or European philosophy, it basically goes back to the pre-Socratics. So you're talking about, you know, two and a half thousand years of philosophy so far, give or take. And the founder of Neoplatonism, Plotinus, lived in the third century CE. And Neoplatonism continues to be a major force until basically the maybe the turn of the 17th century, certainly well into the 16th century. So that's what like basically half the time that philosophy is going on in European history. You've got Neoplatonism as a dominant paradigm, not the only paradigm, but certainly one dominant paradigm. And I could talk, I could tell that already as a graduate student. So I just thought, you know, if I want to have a really broad general understanding of the history of philosophy, I should know something about Neoplatonism. And the more I looked into it, the more fascinating I found it. Okay, well, before we get into these weird and counterintuitive worldviews, which, uh, like you, I, I immediately find appealing, perhaps a nice way to start would be with the word Neoplatonism itself. Mm, because yeah. as I was doing some prep for this episode, I discovered that it was relatively new and not how uh, Plotinus or later thinkers in the tradition describe themselves. So where does Neoplatonism come from? Yeah, that's a really good place to start, actually, because it's, it's a caveat worth issuing at the start of any conversation about Neoplatonism. It's really a construction of modern or almost modern historiography of philosophy, like 19th century German historians of philosophy. And what they were trying to say is that there's Platonism, which is Plato and maybe his immediate uh, successors. And then there's Neoplatonism. So Neo means new, right? And there, the idea that they're trying to express there is that Platonism is kind of refashioned in late antiquity. So again, we're in the, the kind of heyday of Neoplatonism is from the third century CE till about the fifth or sixth century CE. So we're really talking about the later phase of Roman history. We're in the Roman Empire. And at this point, you've had not only Plato and Aristotle, but also the Hellenistic philosophical schools, most importantly, the Stoics. And so one thing people might say if they were trying to explain what Neoplatonism, what Neoplatonism is, is that it's a kind of reboot of Platonism where a lot of Aristotle and Stoicism has been fused with Platonism. So it was thought of as being kind of syncretic, maybe even eclectic. And from some points of view, this could all seem to be kind of an insult, right? So it's like a, a kind of late antique bastardization of Platonism. Mm -hmm. And for this reason, some modern day scholars actually resist the term. So a prominent example would be Lloyd Gerson at the University of Toronto. He actually edited a major reference work on late ancient philosophy, where the contributors were banned from using the term Neoplatonism. So it doesn't appear throughout the entire book. And it's a very, very long book. So, and his argument would be, first of all, that these people, as you just said, did not call themselves Neoplatonists. Neoplatonists. They called themselves Platonists. 
they thought they were successors of Plato. And then he would add that they had good reasons for claiming to be successors of Plato. Like they were genuinely drawing on stuff that's really there in Plato. They weren't just making it all up. And in some ways, you might even say that late ancient Neoplatonists hold on to some themes in Plato better than modern day analytically inclined readings of Plato do. For example, Plato seems to have been really interested in how the ideas about the Greek gods that you find in Homer and Hesiod could be accepted or recuperated or corrected from a philosophical point of view. And the Neoplatonists, especially later on, were very interested in that. They were also very into the idea of like higher orders of reality, which you might think is just a kind of core commitment to Platonism. They were very committed to the immortality of the soul, which is a clear commitment to Plato as well. If you think about the Phaedo, for example. Um, and so a lot of the features of Plato that are pretty clearly there in the dialogues, but aren't so popular now, were really embraced by the so-called Neoplatonists. Um, I, I have to say, I have always thought it was a good idea to continue using the term partially just for clarity's sake, because if you say Platonist, that could mean a lot of things to a lot of people, whereas Neoplatonism is quite, quite a clear reference. And if you replace Neoplatonism with a phrase like late ancient Platonism, then you have a serious problem, which maybe wouldn't be a problem for Lloyd Gerson so much, but would be a big problem for me, which is that I want to talk about Neoplatonism in the Islamic world or medieval Latin Neoplatonism or Renaissance Neoplatonism. And you can't say like Renaissance, late ancient Platonism. That doesn't mean that doesn't make any sense, right? That's a contradiction. So you would have to come up with some really contorted way of describing what you're talking about. And everyone would know that what you're really talking about is Neoplatonism. Um, mm -hmm. I think, and maybe one other consideration here, sorry to go on so long. Uh, no, 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 one other consideration would be that maybe this is a difference between Lloyd Gerson's perspective and mine because he's in North America, but and also he belongs to another generation. So I think he he has often maybe been in an environment where Neoplatonism did seem to be used as a kind of insult or a belittling term, like, oh, that's just Neoplatonism. Whereas in Europe, mm -hmm. especially in France and Germany, Neoplatonism is more like a really successful brand term. Right. So it's it's got a real kind of academic culture around it. And a lot of people are very interested in Neoplatonism in Europe in a way that is, has often not been so true in North America. So I think I think of it as more of a kind of marketing tool, maybe to call it Neoplatonism. But Lloyd Gerson is absolutely right that it's in some ways misleading if it suggests that these people thought that they were doing something new. That's exactly what they didn't think they were doing. They thought they were doing something very old. They thought they were tapping into a tradition of thought that went back to Plato and even before Plato through the pre-Socratics to like the distant, misty, murky past of like Babylonian wisdom and Egyptian wisdom. That's what they thought they were doing. Hmm. Well, as a last con context uh, setting sort of question, you said that Neoplatonism's heyday was from the third to sixth century CE, but you also said we're, st we're still seeing heavy influences up till the 17th century. But just where was it centered? Because I know Plotinus, who was the, the founder of Neoplatonism, was Egyptian. And then you also mentioned Islamic Neoplatonism and Renaissance Neoplatonism. So just mm -hmm. where is the, the movement centered? Or is it just very spread Geographically, out? you mean? Yeah, that's a good question yeah. too. So you're right, Plotinus is Egyptian. And he studied in Alexandria. 
but he then moved to Rome and that's where he okay. sets up his school and he wrote all of his works in Rome. So actually, the, um, since I'm also interested in African, African and Africana philosophy, maybe we can talk about that sometime as well. Um, yeah, I'm yeah, interested in this phenomenon of ancient philosophers who were actually from Africa. And two great examples are Augustine and Plotinus. So they're both from the northern coast of Africa. And Plotinus is, as you said, from Egypt. Um, there are other philosophers that are important in the story. For example, his student Porphyry, and and then Porphyry's student or associate, at least Iamblichus. They're both from the modern day Middle East, like Syria. But Porphyry also comes to Rome to study with Plotinus. Um, so we're talking about a kind of pan-Mediterranean phenomenon. So we have the modern day Middle East, we have Egypt to some extent, we ha certainly have Rome, and then we also have Athens uh, because we because um, Proclus, who's pro probably the most important later ancient Neoplatonist, he is kind of um, carrying on the tradition of having a Platonic academy at Athens. And in fact, in the fifth and sixth centuries, so the last phase of late ancient Neoplatonism, what you've got is two schools, which to some extent have their own character or sort of different uh, emphases, one in Athens and one in Alexandria. So again, we're back in Egypt. So it's really um, at that in this period, we're talking about a phenomenon that stretches basically from modern day Italy to modern day, uh, like Middle East, like Egypt, and then around to through the Middle East on the coasts. Um, later on, though, it's everywhere. So you have Neoplatonism stretching throughout the philosophy of the Islamic world. So that means all the way to Central Asia. And it, so it's influential everywhere. For, so if like, for example, there's a Jewish philosopher named Imgabirol, who's a medieval thinker, who is very, very influenced by Plotinus, and he's working in Spain. Yeah. Did you say his name was Ibn Gabriel? Ibn Gabirol, yeah. His name in, his, he's often known as Avis Sebron, because that's what he was called in Latin. But his name is Ibn Gabirol. The, um, I was just surprised because I thought that the Ibn came from Arabic, but I wouldn't, is that, isn't that correct? That's right. But he, he wrote in Arabic. So he's an, so he's okay. Jewish, but okay. a, lot, a lot of medieval Jewish philosophers are living in the Islamic world and often writing in Arabic. So for okay, example, sorry for interrupting you, but that was just an interesting, I mean, Hebrew, I there's, there. there's Ben in Hebrew is like Ibn in Arabic. Oh, so for like example, Ben Gurion. Okay. Maimonides' name, real name, so to speak is Moses Ben Maimun or Moses Ibn Maimun, depending on which language you're speaking. And he wrote in both Hebrew and Arabic, as did Ibn Kabirol. So that's like Spain, Muslim Spain. And then if you think about someone like Ibn Sina, commonly known in English as Avicenna, he's working in modern day Afghanistan. <laughs> and he's also very influenced by Neoplatonism. So there you have Neoplatonism. Even if you only think about the Islamic world, you have the influence of Neoplatonism going all the way from the westernmost part of Europe to Central Asia, almost in India. Um, and then Byzantine philosophy is very strongly influenced by Neoplatonism. In fact, that's why we have Greek Neoplatonic works, right? So this is something I always try to remind people of that if, if a Greek philosophical work was not of interest to scribes and scholars in the Byzantine Empire, then it will not exist today. Because the only reason we have any of these works is because Byzantine scribes copied them down. And they really copied down a lot of Neoplatonism. So if you compare it, for example, to early Stoicism, we don't have any 
complete Greek works by early Stoics. Um, we do have Greek works by later authors like Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, but people like Chrysippus, for example, we have no extant complete works. We only know their thought through reports oh. and quotations. Whereas we have more Proclus than you could lift comfortably. <laughs> right. Uh, it's just and it's really all because the Byzantine scribes didn't like Chrysippus, for example. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's a misleading example because it's not clear that Chrysippus still existed by the time we get to Byzantium. But I'm just saying okay, that there's this kind of filtering me. process by okay. which um, things don't survive through, for example, the, the transition from reading on scrolls to reading as uh, bound books, or they don't su survive through changes of handwriting, or they just generally don't get copied and don't survive. And the Neoplatonists really did, right? So they survived for like a th about a thousand years before they come back into or come back to Italy, right? So Plotinus survives in the Byzantine Empire for long enough that his works can go to Italy again in manuscript, and then Ficino translates them into Latin, right? Um, and speaking of Latin, there's also Neoplatonism in Latin Christendom. So the, probably the first really important figure here is John Scotus Eriugena, who is a ninth century Irish philosopher who worked in France. So we're talking here about the Carolingian period, very early medieval period. And he translated works that were Neoplatonic. Um, and then you can go right up to like Aquinas writing commentaries on Neoplatonic works. For example, there's a, an Arabic translation of Proclus, which then got translated into Latin. And people thought it was by Aristotle, but then Platon Aquinas was the first person to announce that it was actually a translation of something by Proclus because they had gotten access to the Greek of Proclus, the original text. But he wrote a commentary on this work saying, oh, by the way, this isn't by Aristotle. This is by the Platonists, in particular, this, this guy, Proclus. Um, but he still treats it as a kind of, a, if not authoritative, then at least very interesting text that's worth commenting on. Um, so it's not, I mean, I think people sometimes assume that all this ancient stuff kind of just fell out of use until it was recovered in the Renaissance. And in fact, what I think what people usually think about this doesn't even make sense if you think about it for like 10 seconds, because they think, well, there was all this Greek philosophy and the only way philosophy could exist was in handwritten form, right? And then it was completely unknown for a thousand years or more. And then the Renaissance happened and then they recovered it. And it's sort of, you sort of imagine, like, what, is, what are we supposed to imagine here that they somehow like <laughs> dig up a whole chest full of these? It doesn't make any sense, right? So what's actually going mm -hmm. on is that the Neoplatonic works were known in Arabic translation and in Latin translation, and they were much more completely preserved in the Byzantine Empire, which actually basically just means Constantinople, because that's where the scribes and scholars are mostly. And then those manuscripts come back to like Western Europe, like Italy, and that helps kickstart the Renaissance. So it's there all the time. And it's, it's really, really there. I mean, it's not just that the texts are available. They're influencing everyone from, like I said, from Avicenna to Aquinas to Michael Psellos in, in Byzantium. It's really quite, a, quite an extensive and, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's such an extensive phenomenon that it's kind of hard to even know about all of it. Well, Hopefully we'll get to Proclus and Porphyry and Iamblichus and all these other Neoplatonists, but I feel like we should start with Plotinus, uh, since mm -hmm. I know he's one of your favorite figures, then also the the first Neoplatonist. But mm -hmm. is he up there with Avicenna, 
Ibn Sina, who I know is on your list of all-time greats? Yeah, I mean, certainly if you think about it just in terms of um, historical influence, then for all the reasons I've just been explaining, the answer is definitely yes. And I think yeah. he's also important and wonderful for a couple of other reasons. One is that he does have this incredibly systematic mind, which allows him to combine all of these different strands of ancient philosophy. So basically what he does is he takes ideas from Aristotle and Stoicism and integrates them into a highly metaphysical reading of Plato's dialogues, which had already been kind of uh, propagated before him in so-called middle Platonism, which is a whole other story, but it's not like he's the first Platonist since Plato. So there have been, there's been kind of a revival of Platonism in the previous, say, 200 years, or even more than that, um, arguably even back to the first century BC. But he... He, he takes that kind of revival of Platonism and says, okay, but we're going to also use ideas from Aristotle's works. His student Porphyry says the entirety of Aristotle's metaphysics is contained in the works of Plotinus and also mm -hmm. Stoic ideas about things like providence. So he takes that all together, but it's not just a kind of mishmash of things that don't fit. He's really thought about how it could all fit together in a kind of systematic way. So that's really impressive. But what's even more impressive is that when he writes about all this, he, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like he's trying to take disparate elements and smush them together. That sounds like a, a kind of maybe scholastic enterprise or, you know, a kind of yeah. patchwork. But actually, he writes in this very sort of natural, organic, I would say maybe dialectical way, where he'll start out by raising a question. It seems like these might have been questions that came up in the school where he was teaching, and he'll say, "Okay, well, here's a question: How does the soul relate to the body?" Well let's kind of think about some cases like when you feel pain or um, when you see something and let's compare that to something like having a thought. So the soul seems to be responsible for all of these kind of phenomena, but they seem very different. And he starts kind of weaving his way through a set of examples and objections and problems, often to the extent that you're not even quite sure what he's trying to say <laughs> by the end of mm -hmm. the treatise, because he has this kind of meandering but also very engaging writing style. So you almost feel like you're with him while he's thinking. It's like you're accompanying him through a kind of natural thought process. Um, and this might actually be partially because of the way he wrote. So Porphyry, who is his student and editor, tells us that Plotinus's eyesight was very bad. So whenever we're reading him, it's kind of a first draft because he wasn't, he was barely able to like reread what he'd written and fix it. Mm. Um, there's actually a nice story. Porphyry wrote a life of Plotinus, which has a wealth of wonderful anecdotes about him. And one of the anecdotes is that someone writes to Porphyry and says, well, I need an, I need a better copy of the works of Plotinus than the one I have because mine is full of mistakes. And Porphyry writes back and says, no, 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 that's right. That's right. That's how it's supposed to be <laughs> because it's so mm. kind of unedited, but I think the kind of immediacy and, um, and obvious thought process that's going on in the text is very appealing and actually is very unlike what you get in later Neoplatonism. So reading him is in a way, it's, it is almost like a compromise between reading Plato and reading Aristotle. So it's sort of, it can be technical, but it's like you feel a voice there like you would with Plato. Well, despite this lack of editing, as you've said a few times already, he was a very systematic thinker. And maybe mm -hmm. we should start with his 
metaphysics. And I see that his metaphysics, there were three basic principles. Uh, the one, which uh, you've referred to as absolutely transcendent, and I'm curious about what that means. Mm -hmm. And then intellect and soul. So what are these three principles and how do they work? Right. I know that's okay. a big question. So now, yeah, we're now really getting down to the core of it. Yeah. So maybe the first thing to say is that one of the most distinctive things about Neoplatonism generally is this is not just what are the principles, but the idea of having a hierarchy of principles. And that's something, okay. so that's actually one reason why Neoplatonism is so influential. So you even see it in things like, like I was just reading something about, for my podcast, I was just reading something about 16th century debates about how the church should be organized in England. And in the literature, they say, okay, well, there's this fundamentally Neoplatonic idea that you get in the Anglican church because there should be like bishops and then lower level priests and the authority should kind of flow down through the, through the system with maybe the mm -hmm. king at the top as the head of the church so that the king would almost be like God or the one at the top of this hierarchy and it would, and his authority would sort of flow down. Or you could have a kind of anti-Neoplatonic position, which would be the Presbyterians and Puritans who just want to have no church hierarchy. So obviously we don't need to get into that, but that's a good example of how far reaching this idea is. So whenever you have a kind of top-down hierarchy where causation or power or anything like that flows from higher, more unified, more simple principles to a kind of more dispersed multiple level, that's kind of the core idea of Neoplatonism. So Neoplatonism is always about- And was levels. it original in Neoplatonism? It's, it's, I mean, it was there in Middle Platonism, for sure. Okay. And it's, uh, you could argue is there in Plato, right? So it forms, so you think about like the form of giraffes relative to many giraffes. So you've got one form as a cause, as causally prior to the many giraffes, giving the nature of girafhood to each of the giraffes. So in a way, it's that idea, but expanded to a view of the universe, right? Where everything is understood in that way. And so everything from the relationship between the soul and the body to the relationship between God and the world. So, so that's the general tenor of a Neoplatonic system. So within that, Plotinus has a relatively simple system, actually. So it gets much more complicated as we go along into later Neoplatonists. So his system is, as you said, that there are three basic principles followed by the physical, natural world that we live in. So at the top, we have the one. And if you want, you can think of that as God. Although there might, it might be better to think of the one as a first God. <laughs> and the one is completely simple, as the name implies. So it's characterized only by unity. And the reason why the one is transcendent is that features like thinking and language, according to Plotinus, always introduce some level of multiplicity, right? So it's not, you can even think of something as simple as the fact that if you predicate a predicate of a subject, that you've got two things, the predicate and the subject. So immediately you have the suspicion that you're not dealing with a pure unity anymore. Or if you think about, um, as a more Platinian example, if you think about a mind grasping an object, like a mind and the object of its thought, that would be two things, not one thing. So the mm -hmm. one doesn't think. Okay, so for these reasons, uh, namely that he thinks that the one cannot think, and it's kind of beyond description of all kinds, he says that 
the one cannot be an intellect and that intellect should therefore be the next principle down. And you might wonder well, why intellect? So why do we have the one and then intellect? And then maybe there's a good historical explanation for this, which is that in actual, the first principle is intellect, right? His God is an intellect. And it's commonly assumed by a lot of ancient philosophers that there should be some kind of divine principle, which is a mind or has a mind. So the Stoic God has a mind. Aristotle's God has a mind. In Plato, there's a kind of divine craftsman who makes the universe, who seems to have a mind or be a mind, perhaps. So this is a maybe a kind of general assumption that you find in a lot of ancient philosophy that he's happy to go along with. But as a Platonist, he also likes the idea that this principle could be a mind because then the ideas in this mind or the thoughts in this mind would be the platonic form. So when I was saying before that you have a subject of thinking and an object of thinking, that's not present in the one, the first principle, but it is present here. And what we have in the second principle is a perfect mind, which is grasping objects, which are the forms. So like the form of giraffe or the form of numbers or whatever it would be, those are all there in Nus, or Nus is just Greek, Greek for intellect. So they're all there in the intellect. So, so far we've got the one and we've got intellect. And now we've already got quite a lot on the table, right? So we've got a highest transcendent God. We've got another God, because you can think of the intellect as being another divinity. But this second God is thinking and is responsible for like the causation of reality in our natural world. But then he thinks you can't go straight to the natural world because you have to account for life and motion and uh, other phenomena like that, change, which is why we have the soul. So the soul is between intellect and the physical world. And the soul is something we have a lot of acquaintance with because we have souls or our soul, we are souls actually, but there's also a kind of universal soul which is the soul of the entire world, the so-called world soul, but also he takes from Plato. And this is the animating force behind the universe. It also mediates between the intellect and the physical universe by kind of taking the forms that are present in the intellect and bestowing them upon the material world. So obviously there's a lot more to say about all that, but in a nutshell, that's why we have that version of the system. So as I said, the general picture is we're going to have a hierarchy with more unified, perfect principles at the top and less perfect, less unified phenomena below. And then you can spell that out however you want. So later on, a lot of philosophers who are influenced by Neoplatonism think that the first principle is God, like because they're Christians or Muslims or Jews. So they say that the Abrahamic God is this perfect first God but they kind of put together the idea of the one and the idea of the intellect. So they have an intellective first principle, which is a thinking God, which, which Plotinus thought wasn't correct. Because as I say, he wants to have a, a purely simple uh, first principle above thinking. Um, so that's kind of a, a, a feature of his system that you could take or leave. Um, you even have other Neoplatonists who think that his, his one isn't, transcendent enough. So there's a later Neoplatonist named Damascius who says, well, beyond the one, which is a perfect principle of unity, there must be a principle about which we can say nothing at all. We can't even say that it's one. 
And that would be what he calls the ineffable. So something that just is completely ungraspable and unspeakable because it's so high that it's beyond our ability to say anything about it. All we can do is postulate it as a kind of empty presence beyond even the one. So as I say, this is all kind of negotiable, but the basic picture is you have these this hierarchy of perfect unified principles that generate less perfect, less unified principles. And then within that general kind of framework, Plotinus's argument would be that we need the one followed by the intellect, followed by the soul, followed by the natural world. So that's his picture. And so you mentioned this later interaction with Jewish, Christian, and Islamic philosophers, but Plotinus was around in the third century CE. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about the terminology or the actual words that he used when he was, did he use a word for God when he was yeah. writing? Yeah, Theos is Greek. Yeah. What is it? Theos. So, theos, okay. Or Theos, like with Ha is the definite article. So like the God yeah. would be a way of designating God, right? Mm -hmm. Just like actually in Arabic, Allah, people, the, actually, if you'll permit me a, a quick digression please, please. <laughs> something that really annoys me is that is when people say that in islam there's this kind of other god that is worshipped named allah right but allah just means the god so it's just a way of referring to the monotheist the god of monotheism so like at least at first blush what muslims say they are worshiping is the same god that christians and jews were worshiping and they also accept the the validity of jewish and jewish prophets and the prophecy of jesus so they see themselves very much in the tradition of worshiping the same god of monotheism so it's, it's worth knowing that allah just means the god mm -hmm. and similarly plotinus calls the one he calls it the one tohen but he also calls this, this god Hotheos, the god or god hmm. and i when I was studying Stoicism, I had this same question, and it might have come up in our last podcast, but you mentioned that the Stoics also believed in this God, this principle of God. And to me, why that was curious was they were um, temporally located uh, around the time people were worshiping um, the gods on Mount Olympus. And yeah. this reference to one God coupled with the the cultural picture of gods on Mount Olympus didn't mm -hmm. really make much sense to me. And I'm wondering how Plotinus, uh, on the one hand, well, what his religious beliefs were and how they related to yeah. this philosophical picture where there's only one god. That's a great question, actually. And actually, you're putting your finger there on the thing that most differentiates him from later ancient Neoplatonism. So Plotinus is very like the Stoics in that neither the, he nor the Stoics would come right out and say that traditional beliefs about the gods are false, but they always interpret them in some way that kind of eliminates the impression that we have this polytheistic kind of um, family of distinct entities. Mm -hmm. So uh, for, just for example, he has a treatise about Eros, the god of love, where he basically just explains Eros as a feature of the hierarchy. So it's like the intermediating principle between soul and intellect is for him Eros. So it's the tendency of the soul to strive to grasp or desire, you could say, um, the intellect. That for him is Eros. 
so there's not like some sort of divine person running around making people fall in love right? as, as in our kind of cliche idea about how the Greek gods work. By contrast, in later Neoplatonism, like Proclus, it actually starts with the Amblicus, the Syrian philosopher I mentioned before. You have um, something going on in the historical context, which produces a change in the way that they sort of see um, the relationship between religion and Platonism. And the thing that's changed is the rise of Christianity. So Plotinus is actually really interesting. You can really see the difference between Plotinus and Porphyry. Porphyry wrote about Christianity when it's heavily critical of the Christians. Plotinus is critical of a Christian group called the Gnostics, but he's not reacting to Christianity as a kind of um, like significant cultural force that's already starting to sweep across the empire. We only start to see that happen with Porphyry, who of course is a generation later. And by the time of Proclus, let's say, Christianity has already become politically dominant. So we've had Christian emperors and so on. So that actually things change a lot very quickly in the 200 years between like when Plotinus gets going and when we get to someone like Proclus. By the time we get even later, like the School of Alexandria, we have uh, Platonist, pagan Platonists having to cut deals with the local Christian authorities to be allowed to keep their schools open, right? Mm-hmm. So the Christians rise in power exactly in the period where Neoplatonism is developing. And these pagans react by putting much more emphasis on traditional Greek religion. Where, so whereas Plotinus had put very little emphasis on that and tends to kind of interpret the gods away a little bit without actually rejecting them. What you see in the work of someone like Iamblichus or Proclus is that they make their hierarchy much more complicated with more principles. And there's various complicated ways they have of doing that. But I think all that we need to know is that in where you would have like just the intellect for Plotinus, you might have dozens of gods which partake of an intellective nature in Proclus. And this is a something that he wants to do Maybe there are other reasons, but I think the main reason he wants to do it is that he can then say, okay, this one, this God in this in the intellective hierarchy, that's Hera. And this one is Demeter, and this one is Hermes, or whatever, right? So you can identify the traditional Greek religious concepts with elements in one of these Neoplatonic hierarchies, and his hierarchy becomes correspondingly more complicated in order to accommodate all of these divine personages. And then interestingly, Later on, so for example, in the Arabic tradition, they translate both Plotinus and Proclus into Arabic, but the translation of Proclus eliminates a lot of this multiplicity and returns to something simpler that looks more like Plotinus Hmm. because they have no need for that, right? They're monotheists. People involved in the translation process are Christians and Muslims. So they want to have an Arabic Platonism that's just God and maybe just God and the soul, or maybe God and the intellect and the soul, like Plotinus said, but they don't want to have all of this kind of complexity because they have no need for it, religiously speaking. Well, I saw that you did a a philosophy bites episode on Plotinus and evil. So I would encourage anyone to check that out. That's a long time ago. Okay. (laughs) Well, um, I had like a dark beard. I did that. so, I mean, people can listen to that if they want the whole spiel, but can you give me the, the lowdown as sure, well yeah. on what Plotinus had to do with evil? 
Sure. So um, maybe a good way to start here is what people usually think about when they're thinking about philosophy and evil nowadays. So we have the traditional problem of evil, right? And the traditional, or, or maybe it's not traditional, <laughs> we have the modern problem of evil. Okay, yeah. The modern problem of evil is why would God allow all this evil to exist? So he's an, this is an argument for the non-existence of God. Right. right. If he's a perfect, benevolent God, why would he? Yeah. Yeah. He would never have allowed all the suffering and evil and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so that gives us good reason to think that it either proves that God doesn't exist or it gives us very good evidence that he doesn't exist. Okay. So that's not Plotinus's problem. It has not occurred to Plotinus or anyone in this tradition we're talking about that someone might want to deny the existence of God. That's not the issue. That's really not on the table. I mean, there may be ancient atheists, but usually an ancient philosophy atheist is used as a, an insult. No. And it's just as an insult. You're a godless person. Have the wrong ideas about the gods, like the Epicureans. But no one's saying, oh, well, because there's evil, God doesn't exist, right? That's not a problem that Plotinus would have been confronted with. Okay. So what he's confronted with is really a problem about explanation. So the question for him is, well, given that God is completely perfect, so he's, he, he by the way, maybe I should have said earlier that in addition to calling this God the one, he calls him the good, right? So for him, unity and goodness are completely overlapping, which kind of goes along with what I was saying before about the higher principles being more perfect and more unified, right? So perfection for him is about unity and vice versa. Maybe you're about to say it, but what is the good? Is it like a, a virtue or something? What does it mean well, to say it, that they're the same? It, it manifests at different levels, right? Because the good manifests at every level of the hierarchy. In the case of the one, we just have pure goodness, whatever that would mean. Of course, he's thinking about the form of the good from from Plato's Republic here. Is that Agathos? Yes. Okay. So so this whatever this is i mean obviously his whole point about the one is that it's very difficult to grasp its nature right so maybe the best way of doing that would be to just deny all imperfection of this entity right maybe it's not even an entity because it's above being itself but it's mm -hmm. this is a it's purely good it's purely one and the main thing you can take from that other than that it has no imperfections or multiplicity is that it's the source of all goodness and unity and by the way, maybe I should say like this, this is all something like very doctrinal, but it's maybe good to remind um, the audience that he doesn't like lay it out like this. So what he, what he would do, for example, there's a really great treatise on the one where he says, okay, well, let's think about unity and we can start by thinking about something like an army. So an army has a certain unity, but it's also basically just a bunch of guys, right? And if you compare that to a single human body, the single human body has a much higher degree of unity. And we think of it as a more perfect being than an army. But the soul is even more perfect than the body. And we think of the soul as being more unified than the body because it has no distinct parts, right? It's immaterial, so it can't be divided into parts. And this, and this is how he would get you to start seeing that it makes sense to think about higher degrees of perfection and goodness is being linked to higher degrees of unity. So that's kind of how, that's how he would explain it. He wouldn't start by saying, oh, here's my system. 
the one intellect, right? I mean, that's there always in the background, but it's not really how he presents his philosophy. His philosophy is, as I said before, much more kind of coming to the reader and trying to get the reader to come into the system in a sort of organic way. But anyway, going back to this problem of evil, for him, the problem is, if I'm starting with a principle that's purely good, how would I get evil, right? So as I always say when I'm teaching this, it would be like saying that everything is made of water and trying to explain why some things are dry, yeah. which yeah. maybe the first pre-Socratic Thales actually had this problem, right? Mm -hmm. So um, what, like, where are we going to get this antithetical property to the good if everything comes from the good? And I mentioned before that he has these opponents, the Gnostics, against whom he wrote a treatise. And they were thinkers who posited two principles, the principle of goodness and the principle of evil. And then they saw, thought that the physical world was kind of the realm in which evil and good compete or, or are fighting it out, as it were. So if people may have heard of Manichaeanism. Manichaeans are another kind of strand within this Gnostic tradition. So it's this idea that the physical world is bad and is dominated by the evil principle, but there's an immaterial world which is dominated by the good principle and they kind of clash, right? Plotinus really hates that idea. So he thinks it's, it's um, impious and unsatisfying philosophically to think that there are two principles. Everything should come from one principle. And so then for him, the question is, well, given that I'm starting with this one principle, which is perfectly good, how do I get anything evil? And his answer is that in a sense, I don't. <laughs> so what he will say is that evils are really just absences of perfections that could be there and aren't. So for example, illness is just lacking health. Weakness is lacking strength. Multiplicity is just the lack of unity, right? So if you think about, for example, um, a body that's been divided into parts, he would think of the multiplicity of the parts as a kind of privation of the unity that could be holding the body together. And that makes a special sense if you think about, like, um, let's say, imagine cutting off a part of the body. Well, what you've done there isn't to, it's like, oh, well done, you've created two bodies. No, I mean, what you've done is you've disrupted a really important uh, unifying form by cutting off a part of the body, right? And he thinks that in general, that's how evils work. So that I sometimes have compared this to the holes in Swiss cheese. So what's really real, insofar as the physical world is real, is just whatever ways in which the physical world is partaking in goodness by participating in the forms, which are an intellect, and wherever the beneficial influence of the intellect is not felt, that's where you get evil. So if you think about the whole system, you start out with the one, then you have this intellect, which is as perfect as anything could be without being the one. And then you have soul, which is trying to kind of scatter the reality of the intellective forms into the physical world. And wherever these forms are not realized as well as they could have been, you get evil but evil is just a kind of absence or non-being, he also calls it. So that's it. so if we go back to the original problem, his his problem was not how do I reconcile the existence of evil with the existence of God? His problem is how do I explain the existence of evil given that they would have to come from a good God? 
And the answer is I don't have to explain it because they don't exist. Evils don't exist. They're just absences or non-existences. Um, you, you could also maybe think about this as like, he, he often talks about this whole system as like a, a light, which is shining with the illumination radiating out. That's why people often talk about this as emanation, this kind of stepwise hierarchical system, or he talks about it as like a fountain of flowing water. And you could think about the physical world as the stage at which this light or the stream of water is starting to like become so dispersed or diffuse that it's not perfectly realized anymore. Almost like, a, like imagine a light which is shining and then it kind of fades off into darkness. That's where we are, just where the light is starting to fade into darkness. It seems worth noting that light was a big deal in some of the Islamic philosophers that we talked about last time. Yes. Yeah, they're getting that from Plotinus to some extent. Oh, fascinating. So in fact, they even use uh, the Arabic word faid, which means emanation, is present in a lot of the texts that are influenced by Plotinus. Oh, and it's also the Arabic version of Plotinus. Well, this is more of a meta question, I think, about the practice of ancient philosophy and translation. But a few minutes ago, you used the word privation and privation or absence of perfection to describe evil. But that really doesn't seem like our equivalent of evil today, how we use it, which is more like right. cruelty or something like that. Or, yeah. or, so why is it that the word we use to describe what Plotinus was writing about happens to be our evil, but it, it they don't seem to be very connected? Or is there yeah, maybe some way that Proclus's analysis more directly relates to our term of evil? Our... Right. So maybe so part of your part of what we're dealing with here is a translation issue. So the word that I'm translating as evil is tokakon, which you can just translate it as bad, the bad. Okay. So okay. in Greek, it's very natural to describe something like an illness as an example of evil because it's just something bad. Yeah, that makes much more sense. Yeah, but it sounds weird to talk about, you know, Plotinus' Plotinus's theory of the bad. It yeah. sounds kind of funny. But actually, if you think about it, this is actually something that Plotinus' discussion does have in common with the modern-day problem of evil, because in the modern-day problem of evil, people often talk about so-called natural evils, so, you know, earthquakes or diseases, things like that. And those would be examples of kakon in Plotinus. So in a way, the word evil, I mean, of course, the English word evil has a strongly moral connotation, right? Um, but what we're worried about in both versions of the problem of evil is anything that we kind of wish was different, right? Now that includes moral evil, and it would for Plotinus as well. So for, uh, like a vice such as, um, I don't know, being violent or being dishonest, he would still understand that as a kind of absence, namely an absence of virtue or an absence yeah. of the soul's self-control or something like that. So those perfectly fall within his general description, but he would also think that it applies to something like a sick tree, right? Yeah. So if a tree is sick and dying, that for him would be just as much an example of an evil as a moral failing. So it kind of covers both moral evils and what we would now call natural evils. Yeah. No, this this disambiguation of evil I think is really helpful. And it, it it's interesting that 
good in English is both um, the complement or opposite of bad and of evil. So yeah, I, and actually, I think, I think this is really a place where, like, this is a specific problem that English speakers have that these medieval and ancient traditions don't. So in all of these, like the classical languages, um, the word that you're dealing with is usually good and bad, not good and evil, but not bad. Right. right. So we just need to like adjust our expectations about what the discussion is concerning. And I'm wondering if this discussion of evil at all relates to Plotinus's first writings, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they were on beauty. Because I'm wondering if beauty then, just as evil is a privation in some sense of the good as it filters down through the hierarchy, if uh, if the good or the one is also beautiful and then beauty sort of deteriorates throughout the yeah. hierarchy as well. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, he would certainly think that ugliness was an example of an evil. So like an ugly animal or something, or even a, an ugly face, a human face would be for him an example of evil, which needs explaining, right? Because, so let's take the example of an ugly person. So this may be not a very nice. Yeah, he example. would not be popular today with this philosophy. No, he, um, there's a lot of stuff in Neoplatonism, which is problematic in this kind of way. This is not even the worst of it. <laughs> um, we could talk about slavery or something. Oh <laughs> yeah, well, now I'll ask about that next, but go ahead. Um, but but he would say, well, there is a problem to explain. Why are there ugly people, given that people are participating in the form of human and the form of human is perfect? Yeah. Right? And again, his example is, well, it's just because the form hasn't been perfectly realized. So the form is perfect, but it's reception. But actually, there's a more general issue your question raises, which is the question, can we just take any general positive notion and push it all the way up through the hierarchy, right? So for example, truth or beauty or I don't know, courage or something like that. So can we say that one is courageous? Can we say that it's beautiful, etc.? So it turns out that he really just reserves goodness and unity for the one. Anything else is only going to go up as far as the level of the intellect because it would involve some kind of multiplicity. So, and beauty is a great example because for him, beauty is about proportion, harmony, something like that. And you can't have that if you don't have multiple elements to be in harmony or be well arranged. So you have a perfect arrangement of forms in the intellect. So that's perfect beauty, but you don't have beauty above the intellect. Similarly, you don't, Apparently, you don't have truth above the level of the intellect because in order to have truth, you have to have like, you know, thinking or language or something like that that could be true. And so, again, you want to have truth at the level of the one. I should uh, title this episode Peter Adamson on the Great Plotinus and why there are ugly people. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Um, Get in yeah, I'm kidding. Uh, what? But you said that wasn't even the worst of it. What did he have to say about slavery? I know Aristotle had a lot of uh, views that are not yeah. so kosher on slavery today. Yeah, he doesn't have a long discussion of slavery, but what he has to say about slavery is actually a lot like what the Stoics have to say about it and is kind of unsatisfying in a similar way. So if we even think about the, what we mean today when we say dealing with problems stoically, 
what we mean is that we should accept them and kind of cope, right? And so because of that, the Stoics were quite ready to register that something like slavery was sort of sad or unfortunate or unwelcome, but fundamentally something that you just had to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe you could even say that there's a certain degree of quietism, like, in other words, politically not doing anything in Stoicism because you're so busy accepting how bad things are all the time that you're not doing anything about it. Now, mm -hmm. that's a bit of a caricature, actually. So, the, the, I mean, there's a counterbalancing issue, which is that the Stoics think it's very important to be virtuous. And the demands of virtue might be that you fight for your city or that you right wrongs or commit commit justice instead of injustice and so on. So there's a kind of balance there between the Stoic idea of being actively morally virtuous and the idea of just kind of saying, well, when I can't do anything about it, then I should just accept it. And slavery really falls in the second category for most of the Stoics, which is interesting because actually one of the most important Stoics was Epictetus, and he was a slave who was mm. then freed, right? Mm. Um, and he call when he's talking to his students, he often calls them slaves because he's and he's saying they're they're enslaved to their ignorance or their desires or something, right? Um, in a way, like from our point of view, even the the kind of uh, relaxed way that ancient philosophers are willing to talk about slaves in a metaphorical way, like being enslaved to your desires, that's actually pretty offensive in a society where there are lots of real slaves, right? Yeah. Like that's real slavery, right? Yeah. Um, but the Stoics and then Plotinus, they kind of think of, of slavery as just a kind of unfortunate feature of the world, which is not going anywhere. Like they didn't have any reason to think slavery could ever be abolished, right? It had always been there. Roman society. And when Plotinus mentions slavery, which is not often, it's usually in that context. So for example, he says, well, if you're enslaved, then you, you just have to kind of accept that that's part of providence. And he, even worse, he says, if you, if you can't, if you think you can't deal with your situation, there is still a way out. In other words, you could kill yourself. Right? Yeah. Oof. Again, a good Stoic idea, right? Think of like Seneca and other Stoics who committed suicide, right? Mm -hmm. Or Cato, one of the fam most famous kind of paradigm virtuous people. Stoics are notorious for thinking that under cer certain circumstances, it's okay to kill yourself. Um, and that goes together with this idea that you, some, sometimes you have to think, well, maybe providence has kind of just designed things such that my life is going to be kind of horrible except for the fact that at least i'm virtuous right and again that's true for plotinus in, in general neoplatonists don't really have to think that the physical world can be made perfect because there's so much of their philosophies bound up with the idea that the physical world is imperfect compared to the intelligible world so i think this is maybe the least attractive part of platonism or neoplatonism maybe the one of the more attractive parts of neoplatonism though and this again balances it out is that for plotinus all humans in principle have access to the intellect so even a slave or a woman or a non-greek uh, as long as you're a human you should be able to rise above your physical circumstances and identify yourself with the rational soul within you whose job is to grasp philosophical truth by uniting to intellect or maybe realizing its union to intellect. And so um, 
there are kind of the seeds of a more egalitarian or universalist philosophy in Neoplatonism, which I think becomes exploited later on in, you know, maybe Renaissance Platonism, like some, for example, like Pico della Mirandola on the dignity of humankind, right? That's the same idea because in every human is this divine principle. And if we could just kind of discover it, then that would be to achieve happiness and perfection. And they think that all humans could do that in principle. So let's move on then to the later Neoplatonists. And <clears throat> I, you mentioned earlier, uh, Porphyry was one of Plotinus's students. Mm -hmm. What? Who else was Porphyry? What else do we know yeah. him for? Where did he well, come from as a character? He's a really fascinating figure, in part because he wrote so many different kinds of things. Um, and actually, he, his output seems to have been quite vast. A lot of his works are only preserved as fragments or quotations. But then we also have a bunch of his works that are preserved. Um, kind of weirdly, maybe the thing he was most well-known for, or definitely the thing he was most well-known for in subsequent centuries, is that he wrote this tiny little introduction to Aristotelian logic. So it's even, yeah. the title is even Introduction, Esagoge in Greek. And it, it's only a few pages long, but it kind of gives you some of the main ideas about Aristotle's logic. And later, philosophers thought this was really handy. So when you show up at philosophy school in late antiquity, but also in Latin scholastic uh, universities or in Arabic philosophical schools, the first thing they would teach you is Porphyry's introduction to logic. So he becomes very influential in that way. And there are a lot of commentaries written on it. It's actually one of the most commented philosophical texts in the subsequent tradition because it gives uh, later commentators a perfect example, or sorry, a perfect occasion to kind of expound on the basics of Aristotelian philosophy and logic. So he writes that, um, and then he writes a whole bunch of other things. He writes commentaries on Aristotle. He seems to be the first Neoplatonist or Platonist to comment on Aristotle, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So he's really he's really committed to the idea of integrating Aristotle with Plato, and that goes on to play a role in later Neoplatonism. Um, but maybe the most interesting thing he wrote uh, in a way carries on for what we were just talking about in terms of the soul's relationship to the physical world. So this is called On Abstinence from Animal Food or On Abstinence from Doing Violence to Animals. So the idea of the treatise is that he's addressing himself to a colleague who is a philosopher who used to be a vegetarian and has lapsed from his vegetarianism. And what Porphyry wants to do is persuade this philosopher to go back to being a vegetarian. So he gives this extensive battery of arguments for why philosophers shouldn't eat meat. It There's seems more to be than only one What's that? There's more than one argument. There's many. Oh, yeah. It goes on and on and on and on and on. Oh. And actually, there's a scholarly debate about what what his kind of primary reasoning would be. Um, I had a graduate student who wrote a really good PhD thesis about this and published some of it. Uh, her name is Faye Edwards. And she argued that his, his real motivation is that physical pleasure, the, the pleasure you would get from meat, for example, is actually bad for philosophers because it ties the soul to the body. So you actually want to avoid extreme pleasure if you're a philosopher 
you want to leave it like a very kind of quiet, moderate, calm lifestyle, maybe even weaken your body to some extent so that it's not, so that its demands are not distracting the soul from what it should be doing, which is contemplating the intelligible. Of course, you don't want to be sick, right? Because that's distracting as well. But if you can kind of keep your body still, that would be the best goal for a philosopher. So you shouldn't eat meat. Mm. Not And maybe not even just because it's pleasant, but because it kind of makes your body robust and strong and everything, <laughs> right? This, this, this is, is like such a funny argument. Don't eat meat. It'll make you, it'll be, it'll taste really good and it'll make you strong. Exactly. This, yeah. this is what I meant before. It's a great example of what I was saying before about how Neoplatonism can be very counterintuitive. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of amazing to get inside the head of someone who thinks this way, right? Um, an interesting thing about Porphyry is that he himself seems to have really struggled with the phenomenon of bodily existence to the point where he became suicidal. And this gives, he tells us this anecdote in his life of Plotinus, his biography of the master. He says that, um, he was feeling suicidal and Plotinus sent him away to uh, go to somewhere where there was a better climate so that his body would kind of be readjusted by the warmth and that that would cure him of his melancholic ideas, right? It was interesting because it shows that Plotinus actually was very against committing suicide, right? So he thought this was kind of an illness that needed to be cured. Um, but I think that's really revealing about Porphyry that he, he was someone who maybe felt uncomfortable in his body. Maybe it would have been better for him not to be a Platonist, actually, because mm. <laughs> it maybe fed into some pre-existing dispositions that he had. But anyway, in, in this work on vegetarianism, he goes on to refute other philosophers who believe that it is okay to eat meat. And this is especially the Stoics. Um, and there's oh, a really, really interesting... Yeah, so there's a really interesting part of the book where he says, well, the Stoics think that um, animals are so unlike us that they can't enter into any kind of moral relationship to us. And you can tell that they're not like us because they don't talk. So they don't have rationality like we do. And to this, Porphyry says, of course animals can talk. I had a bird that could understand what I said. The animals seem to be communicating with each other. We don't understand them, but there's lots of people we don't understand either because they're from <laughs> other cultures. We don't need them, right? Yeah. And he goes on and on and on, arguing that animals can talk, are rational, they make plans, they're clever, they can figure stuff out. And so he he kind of um, gives it, yeah, he gives this really pioneering argument for animals being a lot closer to humans than you might think. Hmm. So that's a really fascinating text. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask later on, I was thinking about this, but maybe now would be a good time, whether or not, because a lot of ancient philosophers in a way that contemporary philosophers tend not to write about how one should live and mm -hmm. what it means to live a good life. And I was curious if, if you studied a lot of this, this text in particular, maybe, because you're just fascinated by these counterintuitive views these interesting philosophical moves or mm -hmm. if you also find them compelling in the sense that they change or affect the way that you live your life like are you a vegetarian do you find this book yeah. not uh, only a vegetarian but i'm a vegetarian i'm a vegetarian in part because i taught a course on the history of arguments for and against 
well, it was really philosophy of animals across times and cultures. And that Porphyry was amazing. one of the texts we looked at. And yeah, it was really cool. And at the end of it, I kind of stepped back from it and thought, hmm, the arguments that we looked at that were in favor of being more benevolent towards animals than people generally are, and probably not eating them, these arguments seem to be very, very strong. And the arguments to the contrary direction seem to be astoundingly weak. Yeah. So maybe I should stop eating meat. So I did. So actually, I mean, it, I wouldn't say it was specifically porphyry, but he was definitely part of it. Like the, the whole history of um, philosophical reflection on the nature of animals and what they share with us and so on. And as I just said, he's, he's like one of the first people to really make that point. Um, that kind of brought me around to thinking that people should be vegetarians, not just philosophers, but everybody. Yeah. This might stray a bit from Neoplatonism, but in the course of teaching this class, did you come upon any arguments that were more compelling than the Stoics in favor of eating meat? Yeah. Um, so I think the, the, probably the, I mean, this is kind of ironic because when we looked at utilitarianism and we looked especially at Peter Singer, who's a famous utilitarian nowadays, who's in favor of not eating meat, very, very strong, very animal strong. liberation thinker. But actually I think that um, if you are a utilitarian, you could actually uh, generate some arguments for eating meat under certain circumstances, especially if the animals are well-treated and have a good life for various reasons. So one is um, the animals wouldn't exist any otherwise. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's not like what would, it's not like if everyone stopped eating meat, we'd have all the cows and chickens and pigs we have now, but they would just die of natural causes. Right. No mm -hmm. one would ever see to it that they were produced in the first place. Right. And so a utilitarian might say, well, actually, if you have like a pig that's getting more pleasure out of their life than pain and suffering, even if they have to have some quick pain at the end to be killed, if overall their life was good and they wouldn't have existed otherwise, then you should keep farming pigs. Of course, that would raise the standard for treatment of animals very high, but that would be consistent with killing them and eating right. them. Also, there's the pleasure of we get from eating them which could go into utilitarian calculus. A utilitarian might want to consider the benefit to people who work in the meat industry. So actually, if you're utilitarian, it becomes a very kind of um, tricky balancing act to figure out under what circumstances you could eat meat. Yeah. But I'm not a utilitarian, so yeah. <laughs> no, well, that, was, that was an excuse I couldn't use. Yeah, well, I will um, get back to Neoplatonism, but I'll just respond. It's interesting that that the first utilitarian argument that you mentioned is one that I've, I guess I came up with myself for myself independently of having heard this, mm -hmm. but I decided in this case where the animals wouldn't exist without us, if mm -hmm. I were an animal, uh, if I know the farm and I thought, and I asked myself, would you rather not live at all? Or would you rather live in such and such conditions you have a good life and then hopefully very quickly it just ends yeah uh, i would prefer that latter uh, case yeah right. and so that's sort of how i i just but i only at this point when i'm eating at home at least get meat from the farmer's market where i've like inspected yeah. the farm yeah, sort so of. you so have I, a chance of verifying that that's what the animal experience yeah so that's what i'm what i'm comfortable with at the moment but okay uh, back to 
Neoplatonism. I have a quick question about the logic. Did mm-hmm. Porphyry add anything compelling or interesting to the Aristotelian framework that makes it fascinating in its own right? Or is it just interesting because it's another dimension at which or through which we can get at Aristotle? Right. Okay. So there's sort of two kinds of answer to that. So the introduction to logic is very brief and therefore, and also for beginners. So it's not super advanced or anything. The main thing he achieves there is to identify what later becomes known as the problem of universals. Because he says, well, when we do logic, we're dealing with a lot of universal concepts, like general ideas, like giraffe or red. And then he says, well, you might wonder whether these things are real. And if they are, how are they real? <laughs> and although he, and then he doesn't answer the question because he's only writing this tiny little introduction. So it would go beyond his purposes. But that passage is the most fruitful place for later discussion of the problem of universal. Oh, so one really? of the wow. most central path, one of the most central kind of problems of medieval philosophy is the problem of universals. Yeah. And it all goes back to that passage which they're commenting on. I would have thought that that stemmed from Plato and forms. Yeah, that's a common misconception. I mean, uh, well, people, reasonable people could disagree about this, but I'm always tempted or I'm always inclined to say that forms are not universals, or at least they're not straightforwardly universals okay. because they are paradigms. So they're much more like models to be imitated. I and see. that's not what a universal is. A universal is just a general concept. Right. Also, Plato doesn't have the terminology for universal. So in you know, in Greek, universals is ta katalu. So the thing is said of the whole. So universal, right, means the same thing, uh, more or less. And Aristotle has universals, but he doesn't think that platonic forms were supposed to be universals. He thought that they're kind of an attempt to do what his universals do, but they don't make sense because they're also particulars, because they're perfect paradigms that get imitated. So he thinks Plato is hopelessly confused, in part precisely because forms are not universal, or at least they're not only universal, they're maybe both universal and particular in a way that makes no sense. Um, but anyway, getting back to Porphyry, he so he raises this question in a very nice way, um, which in itself is a kind of achievement, but the other thing about him is that he didn't only write that about logic. He also wrote commentaries on Aristotle's logic. And in particular, he wrote an influential commentary on Aristotle's categories in which he raises and discusses the question of um, how Aristotle's logical picture is supposed to relate to the things in the world. So like when we... So Aristotle has this idea of the 10 categories, substance, quality, quantity, et cetera. And Porphyry says, well, are these just like I, like categories of ideas in the mind? Are they categories of words? Are they categories of things, right? So you, could, you might almost say he's asking a question about whether this is a bit of conceptual analysis on Aristotle's part, or is it metaphysics, right? And he has this very influential answer, which is that, the categories and maybe by extension logic in general studies words insofar as they refer to things. So it doesn't just study words. That would be like grammar. It doesn't just study things. That would be metaphysics. It studies words insofar as they relate to things or so far as they signify things. 
And that becomes a really um, pivotal move in the history of logic because then later people take that as the kind of standard answer to what's going on when we do logical analysis. Well, the last thing I'll ask about Porphyry, because I wouldn't like to get a little bit of Iamblichus and Proclus, is on in the history of philosophy without any gaps, you had an interview with James Wilderging um, about Porphyry's work on embryology. Yeah, right. And so what what's the gist there? Yeah, I mean, he'd be a much better person to ask about that than me, because he's worked on it a lot. But actually there's a lot of issues that arise there so one thing just in general is so so far we've had this picture of the neoplatonists probably as very kind of otherworldly figures who are interested in intelligible reality and so on which isn't wrong but they were also interested in science and especially medicine so some of the neoplatonists wrote about medicine and actually this would be an example because embryology is basically a branch of medicine ancient medicine and so he's drawing on the medical tradition to talk about the formation of the embryo, but he's also interested in how that relates to the metaphysical, the metaphysical picture that we've been discussing. So he's interested in things like, how does the soul come to be attached to the body? Like at what stage does it happen, for example? Like when does the rational soul come to be in the fetus? Um, or he's interested in um, questions about how platonic ideas about reincarnation or fate or astrology relate to the, the formation of the fetus, right? So is the so one idea he has is that the soul is already existing before the fetus is formed. So it kind of arrives and the moment of its arrival has something to do with its later fate, right? So if, if an astrologer is taking a horoscope of the baby when it's born, what are they doing? Like, what, how are they predicting its its future? And um, Porphyry is, at least makes some moves in the direction of saying, well, maybe the idea is that the moment of birth is chosen by the soul and that hangs together with their future life, something like that. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on. It's, again, a pretty short work, but there's a lot of stuff in there. There's astrology, there's mm. physics, there's medicine there's psychology this is really interesting work but okay. Wilberding's really the expert on that well maybe maybe just briefly we'll we'll touch on some major points of Iamblichus and Proclus's before we finish mm -hmm. so beyond being a, a Porphyry student and continuing Plotinus's noble lineage just who was Iamblichus yeah Iamblichus I think is a really important figure and one who's probably underestimated in the sense that people just kind of think of him as like one of these later Neoplatonists who threatened to become kind of indistinguishable from each other. So there's all these guys commenting on Plato and Aristotle and talking about pagan gods and, you know, it's all kind of confusing who's who. But I think Iamblichus is really worth knowing about because he's the one who makes that move first. So he says, look, Platonism is a religion and it is pagan religion understood philosophically. So it's the counterweight to Christianity. And just what pagan gods did he have in mind? Because pagan, I gather, I mean, can refer to all sorts of different uh, religious yeah. beliefs. Well, he certainly includes the 
standard pantheon of Greek gods. Yeah, so, so I wouldn't think of that uh, as pagan. Yeah, I mean pagan here. I'm using the word pagan here. Maybe that maybe that's not the best word to use. Maybe traditional Greek religion would be better. So pagan is what the Christians call this, right? Mm -hmm. And again, yeah. it's kind of an insult, like atheist. Right. Um, but it's a, if if the word paganism calls to mind like praying to fountain to rivers and trees, that's not yeah. what we're talking about. Okay. So yeah. we're talking about polytheism, traditional Greek religion. Okay. But oh, it, this goes back to something I mentioned right at the start that um, they also think of Platonism as tapping into this long-standing tradition of wisdom that goes right back to the Babylonians and the Egyptians and so on. And so in this uh, later phase of Neoplatonism, they would also recognize like the Egyptian gods potentially as being kind of versions of the Greek gods or, or maybe additional gods. They're very comfortable with the idea that there are many, many divinities because there are many, many um, features of their metaphysical hierarchy. Um, and probably the most important or at least most interesting surviving work by Iamblichus that kind of fits into this story is called On Mysteries. And it again has to do with Porphyry. So Porphyry seems to have been uh, like Plotinus, inclined to be skeptical about the religious aspects of traditional Greek religion. So he was very rationalizing. That actually comes out in the work on vegetarianism because he said he he raises one of the objections he spends a lot of time on is that you're supposed to sacrifice animals to the gods. And if we're avoiding violence to animals, we can't do that. And then he gives, goes into this long argument that the gods don't want animal sacrifice. And that, by the way, if he did sacrifice them, you still don't have to eat them. And so he discusses that at great length. That's an example of him pushing back against traditional Greek religious ideas. But an even better example is this work he wrote, which was um, basically a, a kind of list of questions, skeptical questions about Greek religious practices. So these are things that fall under the heading of what's called theurgy, which basically means trying to uh, make the divine manifest itself in the here and now in the physical world. So it literally means God making theurgy. Uh, so he's quite skeptical about that. He, the, for, so for example, he says, well, like there's these use of magical words in these rituals or, um, praying to the gods or trying to have some kind of relationship to a statue of the God. So he, he's, so he's not saying that none of this works necessarily, but he is saying that it's kind of unclear to him how it would work given his Platonist ideas about these gods as being kind of abstract intellectual entities, you can see that it's all very puzzling, right? Mm -hmm. And Iamblichus writes a response, which is called On, On Mysteries, in which he explains why all of these Greek rituals make sense from within a Platonic point of view. And to, to make a long story short, basically what he says is that... Um, the soul, the human soul is not capable of rising to the level of the gods because the gods are transcendent. Instead, we have to invite the gods to manifest their power with us, right? Because he says the power of the gods is everywhere all the time. So you just have to kind of manipulate the world in a way to make that more evident. Hmm. And all of these Greek uh, practices, which we might consider to be like magic almost, um, these theurgic rituals, 
like sacrificing animals would be another example. These are all things that we do in order to allow the God to manifest in front of us um, or to call on the power of the gods to achieve certain effects. Mm. Um, and so this is like a real defense of Greek religion against a rationalist critique of Greek religion from within Platonism. And, and it seems like, I, and you might have mentioned this earlier, uh, Proclus similarly worked to merge this pagan ideology with Neo-Platonism. But yeah. maybe before we briefly touch on those contributions, I, I saw that he has the, the coolest title. His name is Proclus the Successor. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering, since we've got this lineage from uh, Plotinus to... Porphyry, and then to Iamblichus. Who was he the successor of? He's called the successor because he's the head of the Athenian Academy. In other words, he's the successor of Plato oh. and all of the other heads of the Athenian Platonic school. Oh, very cool. So it's like calling him the principal, like the principal of your high school, that kind of principal. Mm -hmm. um, so he's the, the next in line in the long line of so-called scholarchs who were like the head of the school. Scholarchs, yeah, that means head of school, right? So nice. art, scola, right? School and yeah. ar like architecture, yeah, is the, so the architect or archmage is, is what I would think of. Archmage, yeah, right. yeah, like sort of Dungeons and Dragons vibe there, yeah, exactly. But, well, I definitely but... prefer scholarch to principal. <laughs> That's much cooler. Yeah. But uh, maybe I'll start getting people around the university to call me that. Mm -hmm. uh, well, maybe rather than talking about the pagan ideology unless it was a, a major twist on iamblichus we should talk about his argument for the eternity of the universe because that's something we haven't yeah, touched on sure. at all yeah 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 that's really important and that actually is another issue that becomes big in medieval philosophy so we might have even touched on that we in did the in the islamic world yeah. right so um there actually there's two figures that are worth mentioning so there's Proclus and floppinus floppinus john Philoponus, which literally means hardworking or lover of work. Hmm. And it's actually a title which was applied to Christians who were not priests, but who were like engaged in the, leading the Christian community. He was one of the philosophers of Alexandria that I mentioned earlier, who commented on Aristotle from a Platonist point of view, but he's a Christian. This is again, interesting to see this kind of transition from traditional Greek religion, if we don't want to call, call them pagans. So from traditional Greek religion to Christianity. Um, so Proclus is a pagan working in Athens. Philoponus is a Christian working in Alexandria. And Proclus defends the eternity of the universe as a doctrine that all Platonists should subscribe to on the grounds that Plato ascribed to it, according to him. And Philoponus responds with this very, very lengthy work in which he quotes all of uh, Proclus's arguments for the eternity of the world and refutes them at massive length. Right? So the, the original work by Proclus is maybe, I don't know, 40 pages long or something. And the translation of the uh, work by Philoponus, where he responds to Proclus, is, I think, four volumes in English. Okay. <laughs> so it's huge. Yeah. Um, actually, James Wilberding, who we were talking about earlier, who did the embryology stuff, he also translated quite a bit of it. Um, so in any case, 
so there's a lot to talk about here. There are many, many arguments for and against the eternity of the world. But maybe the most basic issue is that there's a dialogue by Plato called the Timaeus, where he describes the generation of the world by this divine craftsman that I mentioned earlier. And in this work, Plato has the main speaker, Timaeus, say that the universe had a beginning and was generated. So the, the Greek word for beginning is arche, and the word for generated is gekone. So it was it's like came to be. And this was taken by some people to show that Plato disagreed with Aristotle. Aristotle thought the universe was eternal. It's always been here. It's always been more or less exactly the way it is now. Whereas Plato seems to be saying that the universe comes to be with a first moment in time because God makes it exist, just like the Christians would say, right? And that would mean, for example, also that the soul couldn't have been eternal into the past. It must have also been generated because it must have come along at some point with the world or later on. So this all um, flies in the face of something that a lot of Platonists would want to say, which is that the universe is kind of a stable, necessary emanation from these principles, these higher principles, right? Because if you think, I mean, think about the way we described the one and the intellect before, these don't sound like entities which would all all of a sudden, like on some Monday, they say, you know what, let's create a universe. No, they're like automatic, necessarily emanating principles, right? Mm -hmm. So Proclus um, is trying to show, firstly, that Plato also thought the universe was eternal. And secondly, that there's a lot of arguments against the idea that the universe could have been created. So he argued, so he has this really nice uh, interpretation of that passage from the Timaeus, where he says, well, what it says is that the universe has an arche. This is the same as the root of skull arc, by the way. Mm -hmm. Arche can mean beginning, like a temporal beginning, but it could also just mean a principle, like a causal principle. And of course, the universe does have a causal principle, namely God. So that doesn't show anything about whether it came to be with the first moment in time. Timaeus also says that the universe is generated, but that could just mean that it's always being generated, like it's coming to be and it's changing, in contrast to the intelligible world where like the forms are always the same and therefore are not in generation. So he kind of gets rid of all that, these supposed textual um, cues that would tell us that the universe is not eternal. And then he gives us a bunch of philosophical arguments for why the universe must be eternal. For example, sort of what I just said, he thinks that God cannot go from not creating the universe to creating the universe. That doesn't make any sense. He thinks um, that the universe's existence is just necessary. And if it's necessary, it has to be eternal and so on. And then Philophanes responds to all that by, first of all, giving a rival interpretation of Plato. And second of all, he argues that it's impossible for the universe already to have existed for an infinity of time. Um, among other reasons, he says, well, an infinity of time cannot finish elapsing. So how would we ever have gotten to the present moment if an infinite time has supposedly already gone yeah. on? Right? I like that You'll one. Never get right. Yeah, it's a good argument. Um, maybe not decisive, but at least at first glance, very convincing. Yeah. Um, but as I say, that's a massive work goes on and on and on. So it becomes a very complicated discussion. And Philoponus's uh, arguments against the eternity of the world 
become influential in the Arabic tradition. So they play a part in this long running debate that we talked about before. Hmm. Well, on, on that note, Peter, I always love talking to you. This was really fun. I think it was a great introduction to Neoplatonism. So thanks so much for doing it with me. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me back. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.